Narcotics have been systematically scapegoated and demonized. The idea that anyone can use drugs and escape a horrible fate is anathema to these idiots. I predict in the near future, right-wingers will use drug hysteria as a pretext to set up an international police apparatus. You know what, Tom? You might have missed your calling. You should have been a philosopher. Well, Bob, in another life, perhaps. In another life. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 37, Drugstore Cowboy. It's called diversion. Those with prescriptions get their safe supplies, then sell them, preferring cash, often so they can buy street drugs, food, or access life necessities. Diversion. That's their word, not ours. It's a kind of ghost story whispered from doctor to doctor. My patient's not taking his meds as I directed. He's sharing them. He's selling them. Now those working in recovery, say kids aged 16 and 17, are getting their hands on those drugs. Right-wing politicians, government officials, and people running abstinence-based recovery programs have recently spread a rumor. They say dealers are taking diverted prescription pills off the downtown east side and selling them at high schools. There's no evidence that this is actually happening, but the mainstream media has given these stories a platform nonetheless. Critics say more needs to be done to ensure the drugs are not being resold. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. None of this is new. Doctors have been whispering to each other about diversion for decades. But now these whispers are a scream. A moral panic about diverted safe supply is catching fire in Canada. And so, on today's show, we want to cut through the noise and show you what diversion actually looks like on the ground. And to pull this off, we set out to find someone who knows this stuff firsthand. Right away, one guy came to mind. Welcome to be the first guest of the newly made crackdown studio here we're still we're still putting up the sound baffles and stuff like that but awesome could you introduce yourself for the mic what are we going with pockets i guess right right right, yeah my name is pockets we decided to use pockets nickname because we asked him some questions that could get him in trouble and we don't want him to face any backlash from this interview pockets tells us he's had this nickname for a long time since the 1980s when he was just a kid growing up in toronto it actually comes from a, a, one of the Lost Boys in Peter Pan. They just named him one time where, uh, Pockets, can you do this kind of thing? And he's got everything. It's like he's the, he's the resource guy. He, he has everything you need. Like if you need tweezers, you need rope or whatever, Pockets has it. You know? I mean, if, if he doesn't have it, you can't get it. <laughs> Twinkle, twinkle, little star, so we'll know where you 
In some ways, Pockets was a pretty normal 13-year-old. He loved listening to the Ramones and horsing around with his friends. But in other ways, Pockets' life was unusual. He mostly stayed at his dad's house. But then his dad got a girlfriend. It started out one day a week, he would go away, then he'd go away on the weekends, and then he was only there on the weekends, and then he just disappeared, right? I moved to a place called Larry's Hideaway in Toronto. I lived in this dive motel there. and I was working um, unloading trucks and at the Oshawa food terminal in the middle of the night, um, so I had to pretend all the time, right, that I was an adult. Pockets remembers the day that everything changed for him. In many ways, it started out just like any other day. He was hanging around with kids from his school, skateboarding. We were out at High Park area. There's a big hill. That, um, I can't remember the actual name of the hill, but we were, you know, it's a great hill to, to go down. You get really good lift at the bottom. There was Someone had built a, and brought a half pipe. This was irresistible. Pockets knew that if he started at the top of the hill, by the time he got down to the halfpipe, he'd be flying. He'd have enough speed to do the kind of trick that would make him a legend in the neighborhood. So I thought I could go 100% around, right around, right? <laughs> like 360. Oh, like over the yeah, top? Yeah, over the top. Of course, I'm going to make it. So Pocket starts his descent, but it's not as graceful as he'd imagined. He's going fast, but he doesn't have the kind of control that he thought he'd have. And when he hits the halfpipe, he's launched high into the air. Just like Bugs Bunny Roadrunner, like I'm at the top and I, uh, I'm like, oh no. <laughs> oh, so you actually had a moment to know what was coming. Oh God. <laughs> I actually smashed into the other, t- other side of it and then fell right down. Right after it, when, yeah, I could get up and I limped home. Right? I didn't skate home. I, I limped home. and uh, but So I thought it was just I'd hurt my lower back a little bit until the next morning when I literally paralyzed. I, like literally could not move, feel my legs. I felt like I was severed. I was half a body. When Pockets gets to the hospital, they tell him he's badly damaged his third and fourth vertebrae. It takes several weeks before Pockets can walk. And even once he can, his back still screams out in pain. Pockets tells me this feeling has been with him ever since. I feel it every day. Uh, I feel the weather. Actually, when it rains, it feels better. You know, it's like this, it's the buildup of, like, when dark clouds are forming and stuff. I feel it everywhere. So it's the pressure drop. Yeah. That's what it is. That's exactly what it is. So uh, that started my life of trying to uh, find pain relief. Uh, I actually started out with Tylenol 3s, is what the doctor had given me in the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. So T3s, you know, I tried lots of weed, but uh, indica, strong indica. So then I'd go to T, get T1s. It would sort of work, but not, not really. For the next couple years, Pockets drags himself through school. He's still dealing with a ton of chronic pain, and he's desperate to find anything that will take the edge off. Until one day, when Pockets is 15, he finds exactly what he'd been looking for. This is shuttle uh, launch control at T minus two minutes, 28, I mean two hours, 28 minutes and counting. Here comes the uh, 51L flight crew boarding the elevator. 
uh, for the second time in two days, ready to depart the ONC building for the launch pad. It's January 28, 1986. If you're around my age, you probably remember this day. It was the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger. This was a pretty big deal. It was a mission to deploy a communication satellite and study Halley's Comet as it flew past. But the thing most people were interested in was that, for the first time ever, the crew would include a high school teacher. And for that reason, lots of schools decided to let their students watch the launch on TV. I think maybe I was at school. You were at school, yeah. yeah. We were skipping the day of school, so, <laughs> <laughs> so that's, we should have been in school watching that, I guess. <laughs> Big smiles today. Confidently getting into the van. Pockets remembers that he spent the day hanging out with a friend, a guy closer to his older brother's age. The plan was to just chill at this guy's place. It was a, an old Victorian house. He had the second floor of it. Yeah. Yeah. So he turns on the TV and, wow, space shuttle's going up. This is awesome. Right. And here comes the flight crew now. Commander Dick Sobey followed by mission specialist Judy Resnick, Ron McNair, and uh, pilot Mike Smith followed by Krista McCollum, teacher in space. A friend of mine said, well, I want to try a speedball. And I said, I've never done speed. I don't think I want to get into any speed. He said, no, no, no. It's coke and heroin. I go, well, you got heroin? <laughs> so, so he showed me or whatever, and he made up an, uh, a rig for me. And I, I figured, hey, I'll try this. Why not? I've got somebody with me, you know, who's experienced. T-minus 15 seconds. And he, he, he gave it to me. And, so how does it feel? What do you think when it's, when it's hitting you? Well, the coke hits me first, right? Of so course, that's, yeah. that's all I'm feeling. It's just a you're rush. You're hearing the ring. And, right. Yeah. So you're on coke going up going at the up. same time as the space shuttle. At the same time as the, time as the shuttle, exactly. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1. And liftoff. Liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. The shuttle was was going up like exact exact timing. All right, so it was me like, doing this shot. They were giving the countdown. Yes. And the, the rocket ignites. It and ignites. I got I got the ringer going. I'm just right. like wow. And then all of a sudden, is that supposed to happen? Standing on a column of bright orange flame and white exhaust, the Challenger punches straight up through a blue sky. But suddenly, the column of controlled flame becomes a chaotic cloud, consuming the shuttle. Then, the spacecraft is gone. The boosters thrust off in opposite directions, still burning their rocket fuel. Flaming debris starts to fall, streaming tendrils of white smoke. Flight controllers here looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. What the fuck? Because <laughs> there was this moment on TV for everyone. I know. Like, Wait a minute. Everybody that doesn't yeah, look yeah. right. We have no downlink. It didn't take long before everybody realized the Challenger has exploded and everybody on board is dead. It was truly a shocking thing to watch live on television. And it's at this exact moment that the dope hits and Pockets experiences his first heroin high. (laughs) 
Pockets remembers feeling confused, like what the fuck is happening here? But he feels something else as well. Painlessness. The heroin leveled Pockets, he tells me. It made him feel like a child again, like Judy Garland in a field of poppies. And right away, Pockets knows he'll want to come back to this feeling again and again. See, most people, they don't know how they're going to feel from one minute to the next. But a dope fiend has a pretty good idea. All you got to do is look at the labels on the little bottles. I know you're probably expecting things to take a turn for the worse in the story right now, but that's not what happens. Pocket starts using heroin regularly, but it doesn't hold him back from the things he wants to accomplish. In fact, it helps. With heroin, Pockets can focus better. It makes him feel more normal. Pockets uses heroin as he graduates high school. He uses it as he learns the cello, and he uses it all the way through technical college. Eventually, Pockets lands a job as an electrician, and later moves to the West Coast for work. He likes it in Vancouver, and he feels pretty good. It seemed like everything in Pockets' life was going in the right direction. So, uh, yeah, so I had enough money to support my family and my house, right? So it's, uh, right. so I was up to uh, at least a gram a day. Right. I was heroin for 30 years, right? right. So black tar heroin. Yeah. And actually, I, I had gotten it from the same dealer, right? It was, it was good. But the drug war never stands still. And that means just when you think you've figured things out, the ground underneath you starts to shift. An unprecedented move by BC's chief medical health officer. For the first time ever, Dr. Perry Kendall has declared a public health emergency over the explosion of overdose deaths. The numbers are shocking. Kendall says there have been more than 200 overdose deaths in the first three months of 2016, 64 involving fentanyl. Everything changed when fentanyl took over Vancouver's drug supply. Suddenly, it was virtually impossible to know what was in your drugs. The start of the crisis was particularly hard on people like Pockets, drug users who'd gotten into a real groove with heroin and who knew how to use it safely. Pockets knew he was in trouble, especially when he got some bad news about his longtime dealer. Then he dropped dead, so I couldn't get that supply anymore. Just like like some ambulance chaser, his nephew. He had his, he had the old cell phone, so he had all the call the call list. Oh, right? the nephew's taking the nephew's over the taking business, over the business. Right, he right, says right? right. So I thought, great, right? Well, and what did the nephew sell you? Uh, it was a, it was a it seemed like black tar heroin. It tasted like it because it had that product in it, but it was mostly fent like it had a car fentanyl or fentanyl product mixed with it. So it felt really. R r different from what it, I was used. Did it drop right? you? Uh, no, no, not at first. No, 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 the third time I did it, 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 it dropped me. And was there somebody there? I was with somebody who called an ambulance, yeah. And so, and, uh, yeah, they, they had Narcan me and got me back. After 30 years of downright productive heroin use, Pockets was facing a whole new life. He no longer had a reliable dealer and the city's drug supply was getting riskier than ever. 
This is frankly a crisis. A crisis because the death toll is climbing. More than 2,000 overdose deaths in B.C. since 2010. Morning, how you doing? Good, it's Tuesday. <laughs> Pockets knows it won't be long before he overdoses again. And next time, he might not get so lucky. There might not be someone with Narcan around to pull him back from the dead. And so he looks for an alternative to the illicit drug supply. Something he can count on. And the best option Pockets can find is a methadone program. Yeah, oh, thank you. This is great. Uh, 210 methadol D, right on. <laughs> methadone has more or less saved my life. I'm an advocate for this stuff, but it's not without its downsides. For one thing, getting on the program means giving up privacy about your drug use. And sure enough, one of Pockets' doctors snitches to his boss, and Pockets is promptly fired. He's told he won't be allowed to return to work as an electrician until he's off the juice. But given how fucked up the drug supply is, there's no way Pockets is going to do that. A little more juice, please. Yeah. That's okay. It must be the same amount because I, I don't have any problem. Yeah. And so Pockets commits to being an ideal methadone patient. He tells me he would try to read his doctor's vibes. And he'd adapt, like a chameleon, to make sure that he'd stay on his good side. I do the same thing with my methadone doctor. We both treat these relationships like they're life and death because they absolutely are. Great. Thank you very much. Have a good day. That's it. I have been medicated. Now on my way home. Eventually, Pockets earns the doctor's trust and is rewarded with a take-home supply of methadone and then Dilaudid. Hydromorphone Dilaudid is still like it's a always pretty been prized the, drug, the, yeah? It's good for synthetic yeah. heroin. That's, that's as close as we can get, you know, that uh, it does. It kills the pain, it does. These pills are a life raft. They're sanctuary from the dangerous illicit drug supply, and they're meant to be just for Pockets, no one else. But Pockets is a generous guy and not the sort of person who would let the rules stop him from helping a friend. I remember there was one day um, where I, I came into Vandu and uh -huh. you were one of the people, uh, must have been about five or six people said, are you okay, man? Like, I guess yeah. I was looking I really could rough. feel it. I could, yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Was, uh, I really, yeah, I was. You uh, remember that? What did I total, look like? I, oh, I, I could say pale, but you're, <laughs> you're always pale. No, it was a certain look, like I don't want to be here look. Right? Right, right, and it was, uh, it was something I couldn't tell whether it was physical or whether it was something that personal, right? Mm -hmm. So I just thought I'd ask you, and it was like, oh, it's the dope sickness kind of feeling. Okay, I see that. Well, I could help you out here. And you gave me a handful of uh, Dilaudid. Yes, yes, the eight mils uh, right. Dilaudid, and yes, cause and, I, and that I, was prescribed to you. Right? They were pre prescribed to me by the doctor. Yes. During this time, Pockets tried to avoid street drugs as much as he could, but sometimes he'd start chipping and get a bit of a fentanyl habit. And when that happened, Pockets' tolerance would shoot way up and his medication would basically become useless. Pockets tells me he'd often sell the surplus meds to make a few extra bucks. Other times, he'd just give them away to help somebody out 
like one day when Pockets ran into an old friend, a guy he'd recently had a falling out with. He was real sketched out on the street, and he was trying to get me to go with him to do this job. And I said, no, I don't do that anymore, right? I'm not, I'm not into doing that, but... Uh, I what was the, the job? I, was go I think he was going to steal some city's boat um, motor or something, and I was not into that at all. I can't remember exactly what the product was but that he was right. going for. And I said, you know, if you're just dope sick, here, you know what I mean? Let me help you out with these, you know what I mean? This was, you can probably sell them or whatever, but at least do this, please. Don't, don't get yourself into any trouble, right? And he didn't want to be on methadone or anything. No. Because he, why? Well, he just, it, it's, he thinks... I guess his his job will know, or his family will know, or something will know if he if he goes that way. Really. He works in the trades, though. He's worried yeah. for the same reason that you yes. you were worried yeah. that if the if the employer finds out that you're on any yeah. kind of and I, so I understand exactly yeah. that if he, he yeah how, how did they find out about me? It could easily find anybody could get found out, right? But uh, yeah, um, but this is pushing him to into much more desperate kind of circumstances. Yeah, yeah, they're doing some strange things. Do you think he went and stole the boat engine? I'm not or? sure what he did. Actually, yeah. I've never seen him again since. So it's like <laughs> You're still trying to help out somebody, even though you had a falling out with them. You got it. You got it. That's because I know what they're feeling and how much trouble they could get in. Right. right. Yeah. Pockets isn't the only one who diverts his meds in Vancouver. Right now we're on the southwest corner of Main and Hastings streets. This is Pill Corner. Think of it like an open-air pharmacy, no prescription required. Pill Corner is a kind of hub for diversion in Vancouver, a well-known spot where people go to score, particularly before work. Right, like so many buses come right through that corner and so you get off, you do what you got to do and then you get back on if that's what you, you know, so. This is Jeff Bardwell. Jeff is a research scientist at the British Columbia Centre on Substance Use and he tells me that he started researching diversion in Vancouver back in 2019. Uh, a thing that's important at that time is dillies were actually expensive. Uh, they used to cost uh, $10 for Years and years and years, it was always the same, $10 for a Dilly 8. Yeah, Dilly 8, 10 bucks. I, I, I think that's an important point though because it was way more expensive than buying Fent. And so that, that's really pointing to poverty as, an, as a driver of like what, pe what drugs people uh, can use, right? Things started to change during the early months of COVID-19. In April of 2020, the BC government expanded the ability of physicians to prescribe medications to us, including hydromorphone, also called Dilaudid, or what we call Dillies or Dilly 8s. These meds only reached a tiny fraction of drug users in BC, but they still made a big difference here at Pill Corner. Thanks to the government's program, Dillies are now somewhat easier to come by, and the price on the corner has fallen from $10 or more per pill to sometimes as low as $1 per pill. Yeah, we're just seeing from our research that people are really uh, doing diversion for like uh, to help their communities out. People rationalize selling their pills and only their pills because, well, no, this is like providing a safe supply. And so like, I'm not worried about my friends dying. 
This new and affordable supply of diverted opioids has been an enormous benefit to downtown Eastside drug users, albeit one that the government never intended. Next stop, Main Street. So in this in this episode, we're talking about diversion. Can you just tell us what does that word mean? Hmm. That depends, I guess, who you ask. This is Professor Thomas Kerr. Thomas is a drug policy research scientist from the University of British Columbia and a colleague of Jeff Bardwell's. I think if you ask the College of Physicians or a lot of treating physicians, they would refer to diversion as, as one of the most harmful behaviors out there when people give away things they shouldn't give away. But I think if we all stand back for a second and we situate diversion in the context of the greater humanity, I would call it something else. It's really common. It's called sharing. Thomas, Jeff, and a group of other researchers recently published two papers looking at the diversion of prescription opioids in Vancouver. These papers feature interviews with 31 people who regularly sell and buy diverted pills. The researchers asked them, why do you do this? Some participants said it was because they were extremely poor, that they'd actually prefer to just take their medication, but they had to sell them instead to make ends meet. Other people told the researchers that they were wired to illicit fentanyl. Their tolerance was sky high, so they'd sell or trade their pills in order to get the stuff that they actually needed. Many of the participants said that they don't make any money when diverting their meds. One participant told the researchers, well, it's fucking necessary because people need them or else they're gonna take fentanyl and die. What we really found was that at the heart of uh, a lot of this activity uh, was a real desire to try and help people. And that's something we don't talk enough about in, uh, you know, this community. You know, you hear often that when people do share drugs, it's, it's because they're concerned about someone else being quite ill and trying to help them out of that because they've been there and they know how excruciating opioid withdrawal is, and also in the current context of the wildly contaminated and unpredictable drug supply to try and protect people from death. Most doctors and health planners in Canada don't see it the same way as Thomas. Instead, they think of diversion as a scourge, something to be stamped out at all costs. And to do that, they've come up with a number of policies to get us to stop sharing our meds. That's why most of us have to take our meds under witnessed ingestion. That means we go in every single day and we take our medication in front of a pharmacist. Sometimes they pop open the slow-release oral morphine pills to sprinkle the little beads into a spoonful of applesauce to make sure that we don't cheek it. And then there's the piss tests. As a drug user, you can expect lots of regularly scheduled piss tests, but also some unexpected random ones too. Your clinic will call out of nowhere and demand that you give them some urine that day. And if you don't comply, it might be treated as a failed test. That gets used as a, as a form of control and punishment uh, over people's bodies. Uh, I mean, I haven't eaten a poppy seed bagel for 20 years because 
uh, you know, the poppy seeds can come up in your urine screen at the methadone clinic as, well, poppies, opioids, all this, right? At least that's what, that's what people say. Yeah. And, uh, that's what they warned me at the clinic. And I'm like, well, can't I just tell you that I've had a poppy seed bagel? Well, no, they're, they're not going to believe you. Right. So, so, uh, yeah, I mean, and certainly every time I go in there, they want to, uh, they want us to piss in a cup, you know? Yeah. Which in and of itself is, I don't know. It's, um, you know, this all creates interpersonal dynamics that, you know, reek of coercion and control. And it's, it's, it's hard for people. These do not create good vibes with the patient community who are trying to access these types of programs. Again and again, researchers have found that these kinds of punitive policies make it harder for us to survive the overdose crisis. Anti-diversion measures weaken the methadone program. They weaken the risk mitigation guidelines, and they turn our doctors into cops, someone to be feared and avoided, not somebody you can trust. Pockets knows this all too well. His reckoning with Canada's anti-diversion policies came all at once out of the blue when his doctor says, you haven't given us a piss test in a while. We need you to do that today. I guess I didn't even think about it ahead of time. I really should have. I, you know what I mean? Right. I didn't even think of what I've been doing the last couple of weeks, right? I was I was selling my juice, right? So I was like, you also know, there's I mean? no juice in your urine, right? I was going full out, uh, yeah. So they found dope. fent in your urine. Found found dope. fent and coke in my in my urine, but yeah. no methadone. But no methadone. Yeah, exactly. Well, then what happened? Well, then that's what the question was. What's going on? I said, well, I ha- I hadn't done it for a couple of days and stuff like that. He says, no, there's zero in your bl- in your blood. You did still have a detect of something there. I'm like, okay, a week, right? You know, so it's like it just like you, you got me, right? So my doctor just said, wag a finger at me and just did he wag a finger? Was he mad? Like no, not mad. Just saying, no, no, no. Like his jaw, his he's sorry, but he's his hands are tied. He has to do this. Pockets' doctor tells him he's cutting his prescription in half, and he tells Pockets he considers what he's done to be stealing from the clinic. It's like, well, am I stealing money from you? Like, why are you so concerned with this? Right? Well, it's, well, it's not stealing. It's <laughs> you gave it to me. It belongs to me. Hmm. Wonder how long the bus will be. Alright, well here I am. Walking up the street early Tuesday morning at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, woke up at 4.20 so I could go get my juice. Pocket's doctor didn't just cut his dose in half. He also took away his carries, which means now Pockets has to get himself to the pharmacy every single day. Today, Pockets has a job lined up, and so he has to leave at 4.30 in the morning to get his juice before work. Is there buses running at 4.30? There's a night bus. Right. It's the last right. night night bus that I get. Morning. Morning. How you doing, man? Good to see you, brother. Good. How are you Peace. Doing? Not bad. Just waiting for the bus. I can I get a ride to Victoria, please? Thanks. But when you can't afford the bus, it's just always good to ask. Is anybody else on the bus? Is anyone Usually else going to the Usually he's driving crime? really fast. The bus driver is just motoring there, right? So it's it's like the express bus because there's no one else getting on. All right, thank you, driver. Have a good day or night, everybody. Whatever it is to you. Enjoy it. 
so you you really like this pharmacy because you can get your juice before you have to go to work exactly. and, and exactly. work often starts at seven. Yeah, I would right. need it. I can't. I don't want to wait till after work. I wouldn't be able to function. There's no way. You know what I mean? And people would notice. What's wrong with this guy? Right. So, um, what difference does it make? Like, what it mean? in your life to have carries what what was the difference freedom freedom to be able to like or like from other people knowing what i'm doing like you know what i mean so freedom to travel anywhere i want when i want i don't have to talk to my doctor and ask and beg to be able to go go somewhere like to the island or go back to you know go anywhere right and i've once uh, once so how long has it been since you've been able to go back and see family uh, i haven't seen my mom in almost Six years, I guess it's been. So uh, I need, I want, yeah, six. So this is what people mean by liquid handcuffs, eh? Like, mm -hmm. you're literally... You're like, stuck. Yeah. All right, made it. Uh. Pocket Story makes you wonder, Who's actually trying to save lives around here? Pocket's crime was to distribute potentially life-saving medication to his friends when they needed it most. In response, our healthcare system snatched Pocket's medicine away. They put barriers between him and his safe supply of opioids in the midst of a deadly toxic drug crisis. It is now much easier for Pockets to get illicit drugs, drugs that might kill him, than it is for him to get prescribed regulated opioids. And some people want to make it even harder. Do you ever feel like everything's broken in Canada? I mean, here we are. Most beautiful place in the world, beautiful British Columbia, the Pacific, the Vancouver skyline, and another tent city. In that tent city are people hopelessly addicted to drugs. This is Pierre Poliev, the leader of the Federal Conservative Party and likely the next Prime Minister of Canada. This is a, a deliberate policy by woke, liberal, and NDP governments to provide taxpayer-funded drugs, flood our streets with easy access to these poisons. Uh, they have, this has been tried, and always with the same results. Major increases in overdoses. And a, and a, a Polyev is full of shit. He knows that BC's streets aren't actually flooded with woke government dope. He knows it's illicit drugs, not those prescriptions that are actually killing people. But that hasn't stopped his moral panic from gaining traction in Canada. In recent months, people become especially worried about diverted opioids making their way from the downtown east side into more affluent suburbs and particularly into city high schools. You know, people, people write to me or say to me, well, look, you know, like if you just prescribe Dilaudid out there or Safe Supply, that's going to wind up in the hands of like little Johnny from Point Grey. You know, my kid in high school is going to wind up doing the drugs that you guys, who you've already made your choices and fucked up your lives, you guys are going to fuck up their lives. Mm -hmm. So like, what do you say to that? Well, there's certainly some physicians who feel very strongly that that is something that is happening. That, uh, you know, people who work in detoxification programs say they're seeing young people who you know, initiated opioid use on diverted hydromorphone and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, my thought on that is, is that access alone 
does not determine whether someone kind of spirals in their drug use. That, you know, I think that there are a whole bunch of other factors that are both individual and social in nature um, that prompt people to kind of take that next step. You know, uh, it's often pain, it's trauma. But I don't think you have otherwise, you know, quote, healthy (laughs) people walking around who basically have their life together and they kind of suddenly get exposed to uh, or they have the opportunity to take a hydromorphone tablet and that's it. The next day they have an opioid use disorder. It doesn't work that way. There's something else missing from this growing moral panic around diversion. It's time that we all grew up about this shit and realize that kids use drugs. Kids have always been able to buy illegal drugs, and now the internet makes that easier than ever. Some buy illicit down or fake pills containing fentanyl, and some die because of it. Just ask mom stop the harm. This shit isn't just political rhetoric, it's real life. And if your kid wants to experiment at a party, I sincerely hope they find diverted dillies instead of benzo dope, which is way, way easier to get. I hope that regardless of the drug they're using, they can access a safe, regulated supply of the stuff. That's how we actually keep people alive. And luckily, there is a group fighting for that. And Pockets just happens to be one of its leaders. Ladies and gentlemen, do a roll call now. Yeah. All right, Jack. Yeah. Wendy. Yeah. Ray. Yeah. Ian. Yeah. After getting his script cut by his doctor, Pockets joined the BC Association of People on Opioid Maintenance, and together we all planned a four-point program against these anti-diversion measures. It goes like this. One, carries for whoever wants them. Two, no more fucking piss tests. Three, prescribe what we actually need. And four, let us co-write the policy. Nothing about us without us. Nothing about us without us. That's a definite, uh, like, that's, uh, it's in my heart, right? If we're going to do anything, we have to do it ourselves. They made up these laws about opium because anybody caught with an opium den, now they've taken over your property. They've seized all your land. Exactly. And not just yours, all your family's land. Exactly, right? And so, and that's what we always have to question. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Since joining BCA Palm, Pockets has become a real unsung hero within Vancouver's drug user movement. Now he regularly leads our meetings and organizes actions. And Pockets does another thing as well. He keeps on sharing his meds with people who need them. There's a couple people I know that they're not on any doctor's uh, opiate antagonist treatment. So I help with that, right? So like the doctors took your carries, cut your script like you see the stakes of this you know is, is life or death are you like are you gonna keep doing this uh, of course yes just so people keep stop dying you know if the doctor won't give them to them i'll get it for them somehow you know people that we've lost, the thousands of people that we've lost, 
Do you have any dedications? Now is a good time to say their names. Miles, All my relations. Put the chairs away and do not crowd the door. I will call your name. Okay, I guess we're done. Um, oh, wait, Garth, there's a song you wanted to do at the end, right? Yeah, there's like an old California punk band called Blatz. Yes. And they kind of, a lyric from their song, Fuck Shit Up, is like the unofficial um, mission statement of BCA right. Bomb. You like to start the meeting by saying it. Could you say it for us now? Yeah, well, I don't want to piss in a cup. I want to fuck shit up. Fucking Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Raya Jean, and Rest in Peace, Dave Murray, Greg Frez, and Sharice Kiwatton. This episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Fenn, Alexander Kim, Alex DeBoer, Lisa Hale, Thomas Kerr, and me, Garth Mullins. Crackdown's academic director is Ryan McNeil. The music in today's episode was written and performed by Thomas Kerr, James Ash, Sam Fenn, and me. This was the last episode we produced with Alex Kim. He's moved on to a new job. Alex, we'll miss you lots, and the show won't be the same without you. I'd like to say goodbye to a few people who are important to us and our community. Ricky Iraqi, Flora Monroe, Miles Helps, and Sarah Spate. RIP also to Tara A. Kelly, daughter of Grand Chief Doug Kelly, who you may have got to hear in episode 12. An NA group in Surrey now carries her initials. They call it the TK meeting. If you like what we do, please support us at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and keep six. Honestly, that's a, that's a beautiful riff. But like the like the crashing down the stairs. That's just a nice one. That's fucking sick. No, that's great. That's perfect.